Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about housing for a second, because as I say, uh, vital signs, it's a, it's a report that comes out and it's, it talks about where we are with things, with housing. And the report for 2023 is out and there's a lot of information in it, much of which I think you could probably guess, but that is probably going to endorse your views about where our problems lie with housing. I want to bring in Terry Cook. He's the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. He joins us now. Terry, thanks for doing this today. Happy to, Scott. Now, before we talk housing, yes. you let me digress for one minute. Are you going to talk nylons? No, you talked about the 96 breakup. Yes. I was the chairman of the regional government at the time. Yes. My buddy, Ron Foxcroft, convinced the region that we should provide a million-dollar guarantee to the CFL because, of course, the breakup in Hamilton could never lose money. Right. I was there in the snow. Nobody from Toronto came to the game, notwithstanding the <laughs> fact that they had a great football team. And do you know what we wrote the check for, for that great cup? A nope. million bucks. Uh, that sounds <laughs> like the uh, former mayor of Montreal saying uh, uh, an Olympics could no more lose money than a man, a man could give birth. Yeah, I Jean think it was, uh, well, you know Jean what? The famous last words, I guess, right? Yeah, Jean Drapeau. Uh, so. Thanks for bringing that memory back. You well, know, I appreciate that. It's, you know, it actually gives us a nice little segue here because if the Olympic Stadium and the Olympics cannot lose money as a building, uh, let's move into housing for a few minutes here because... Yep. We do, uh, everybody, I don't, I don't think there's a person in Hamilton that doesn't understand that we have a housing issue. Your view of what the issue is, is going to vary, I believe, depending on where you are on the spectrum. If you are someone who's trying to buy a house, for market houses are just too bloody expensive. If you're someone who's trying to rent, rents are just too bloody expensive. If you're someone who's not at that level, getting affordable housing is just too darn difficult to get. If you are in a tent, any housing is impossible. It's affecting everybody. Yep. Well, for the first time in memory, when Canadians were polled recently, they identified housing is the top priority issue. And, of course, historically, things like health care and taxation have risen to the top. Never in my memory has housing been identified as the number one issue from coast to coast. For anybody that has traveled this country, as I've had the good fortune to do, I was on the downtown east side in Vancouver recently, there is a tent city there that has to stretch a mile long. And I've also been in smaller communities like Peterborough, Ontario, where they too have an overwhelming problem with precarious housing and encampment. So it's not a a problem unique to Hamilton, although because of Hamilton being a magnet for people in the GTA looking for cheaper housing historically, um, I think we have some particularly acute challenges, and, and this report highlights that. And, and I guess, Scott, what is most troubling when you look at it is that for every one unit of new affordable housing that we're building, we're losing 23. And that, that's got to be a sobering number for anybody that cares about people and, and the need for everybody to have as a human right dignified essential housing. We're, we're in a crisis. Terry, you had mentioned that our biggest problem or one of our biggest problems, I can't remember the exact words you said, was that for every, repeat it was, for every new unit of housing we get, we lose 23. Is that what you said? For every new unit of affordable housing that we create. So non-market, the kind of stuff that uh, we really need to deal with a crisis with encampments and precariously housed people, we're losing 23. Predominantly because... Uh, well, because the REITs and the private market are buying them up, renovating and raising rents, because they can, because rents have gone up so dramatically in this market. 
so they are no longer accessible or available to people who are living on modest incomes or low incomes. Um, and as a result, they're being increasingly displaced. So they're either leaving the community altogether and or they're falling into homelessness. Now, that undoubtedly has to have something. I mean, it's supply and demand. There's not enough demand. So we have heard for years, I know you've heard the same thing. We've all heard the same thing, that uh, developers have said, you know, Hamilton can be difficult to work with. It can be really slow to get things through the process. Is this something we just need to be better at in the city? We had the mayor on a number of weeks ago, and I think she said 32,000 or 37,000, whatever it was, homes are in the process yeah. But that doesn't mean they are shovels in the ground. That means somebody may have just put forward an idea. Do we just have to be better at getting way more homes built way faster in this city? Uh, no. I mean, that there, there's we could spend an entire program on municipal approvals and the NIMBY syndrome, neighborhoods fighting against affordable yes. housing, which is a problem uh, that has gone on and afflicted communities forever, and that's got to change, and we've got to have more courageous local leadership to stand up and say this stuff belongs in every neighborhood. Uh, I dealt with that when I was an elected official 30 years ago and uh, had to stare down some angry mobs. Uh, but, but that in and of itself, simply increasing supply, because most of the supply from the private market is upscale condos and single-family homes that started in 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 uh, you know, very high price. That is not going to address what public policy and governments have failed to do over the last 30 years. And the quick history lesson here is, starting with the Mulroney and then the Martin governments in the 90s, the federal government abandoned their role in providing low-cost housing. Uh, the Harris government, when I was in office, downloaded the responsibility on the municipal taxpayers, which had a dramatic effect, especially in older communities like Hamilton, that it had provided the most uh, inventory of that kind of housing to people here that had come here from many communities far and near. Um, and, and those chickens have come home to roost. So add to that population growth and a huge influx in international students, and lo and behold, you have a housing crisis on your hand. This has been unfolding over the course of 30 or 40 years, and it's only been in the last five or ten, that the accelerating factor of population growth has really shone a light on it in a way that is uh, would have been incomprehensible even a few years ago. Terry, if you drive around this community, you will see tents in virtually every park in the lower city. And uh, that has to be a, a wake-up call that we got to do better at this stuff. The reason I asked about whether if we just build them so much faster is, uh, you're absolutely right, I don't dispute a thing you said about they are expensive. The new ones that are being built yep. are, are yep. expensive. Yep. But if we had a lot of those that were built, would that not leave some of the ones that are being, as you described, renovicted that, uh, you know, that for, would for be sure, available? It, it would, supply is part, part of the answer. And the private market has to continue to do that because private market builds 95% of the housing that we have. Uh, but that will not make up for the gap at the lower end of the spectrum where people living on social assistance rates that really haven't changed since the 90s are not even going to be able to afford an entry-level apartment. There's no inventory. There's no supply. Right. And, th- and then if you couple that with the challenge of high-acuity people who have mental health and addictions challenges, they not only need housing, they need wraparound supports if they're going to uh, if they're going to survive and thrive in this community. So uh, we, uh, you know, I would have to first of all look to all levels of government. 
to get back into this game and ad- address a problem that is a crisis across the country. Should governments be, even if governments are building or helping to build facilities, should governments be in the business of operating those buildings when they're built? Is government... No, not necessarily. I, I, okay. you know, my, my experience is the best operators that we have tend to be the charitable sector people, often faith-based communities. Indwell, for example. Like Indwell, yeah. who we are, you know, all, you know, to be entirely transparent, the foundation is a major financial partner and investor and lender to Indwell in a bunch of their projects. We've financed the purchase of their land and the building of some of their buildings, uh, along with others. Uh, so they're a great example of an organization that does remarkable work with a, a very high-need population. And I think they do it better than government ever will. So I'm not suggesting that government necessarily are the builder and operators. The builders will be private sector builders. The operators for that segment of the population are likely best suited to folks who have an orientation to service. Mm. And those tend to be the charities and the faith-based organizations. And I'm, thr- I, you know what, I'm thrilled that you said that because I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that those people who are passionate about this and really want to be in it, like Indwell, do an amazing job doing this. It's a question of finding more groups to do it. How do you find more? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure you find more groups. I think what you need to do is make sure that the existing charitable entities have the capacity and the capital to do that. And that's one of the reasons the Community Foundation, and we're already millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars invested in affordable housing in this community over the last 15 years. We've just committed an additional $50 million over the next five to 10 years precisely to fill some of the funding gaps. So, for instance, there are a bunch of projects that have been identified land available by the Coalition of Housing Providers in Hamilton, but they don't have the ability to do the, fo- the soft costs at the front end. So the planning and environmental work, the cleanup of the sites to get them truly shovel-ready. And that's where we're going to focus a big part of our attention and our capital in the years to come. It is, um, there, there's so much more that I, I wish we had a lot more time. We don't, uh, but people can go look it up. HamiltonCommunityFoundation.ca is the website. Uh, you can find the Vital Signs report there. And we're launching it in about 20 minutes to a full house down at the downtown library. And okay. boss Paul Burton is kicking off as the specter, a partner in this endeavor. Well, and so if you're near the downtown, you can you can run down there right now. There's probably even coffee involved. Um, Indeed. But uh, it's, it's, it's certainly an important thing. We do housing, as you say, the... If it's not the number one thing now, it's right up there, and uh, it's it's become a real problem. We have to figure out some answers. Uh, Terry Cook from the President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple hours ago at Hamilton City Council, my next guest was bringing forward the motion that he promised he was going to bring forward. And uh, he was talking about Hamilton, how Hamilton is facing a rainy day. And then, not just a rainy day, but probably a tsunami of taxes to follow. And so, Councillor Ted McMeekin brought forward his motion to create a flat tax, or a, pardon me, a tax cap, not a flat tax, a tax cap, a 4% cap on what the municipal increase could be. I want to bring in the Ward 15 councillor who joins me now. Councillor, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. So when you, um, two or three weeks ago, or I don't know how, three weeks ago, four weeks, whatever it was, recently when you brought this idea forward, 
What was the, there had to be some response from the public. What kind of response did you get? Did people say great idea? Did people say you can never do it because that won't cover services? What was the, what was the feedback? I had uh, 263 <clears throat> tweets, emails, personal contacts, phone calls. Um, the only opposition to my motion, there were seven people who were upset and said they were upset because they thought 4% was far too high. Were they right? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I think 4% uh, uh, happens to mirror exactly uh, Canada's current inflation rate. So it, a, a good case can be made for, for arguing that the city needs to at least keep up with uh, inflation and that... Uh, you know, residential taxpayers uh, would understand that and uh, support that. So that's uh, largely what uh, predicated uh, my motion. So people understand this, and I think there's been a little bit of confusion on this, so let's sort this out right now. What you're proposing is a 4% cap on the amount that the city is adding to their municipal taxes. It would be separate from any amount the province would be downloading onto the city, correct? That's correct, and that ties into... uh, uh, the Bill 23 and <clears throat> all of the Greenbelt uh, arguments. Uh, it's a bit up in the air now, given that Premier Ford, uh, thankfully, decided to backtrack on uh, the Greenbelt lands uh, for development. But we're not sure just yet what the impact of uh, cancelled development charges on uh, purpose-built housing and such uh, uh, and some other things that have been recently downloaded uh, uh, from the province, uh, the premier has promised to make uh, the city whole, um, but Scott, I've not seen any evidence of that yet. Okay, so when you bring this forward, though, um, there was a uh, I would describe it as a vigorous discussion, a vigorous debate around the council table today. Is that what you thought was going to happen? Yes, in fact, uh, it's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> it it uh, in a sense, it's good it didn't come to a vote because the the split. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work talking to my councillors. Uh, the vote would have been lost on an 8-8 tie vote. Maybe. Maybe. Because I talked to a few after, and I'm not sure that's correct. I think there may have been one or two that uh, that may have put... Well, either way, it would have pushed over the top, but I'm not sure. But it's been now put yeah, over well, to... I, yeah. Well, I was. I, I knew I had eight votes. So okay. I was, the reason I was anxious to have it go forward, uh, in spite of some uh, protestations, by you know a couple of uh, of those who uh, want to let the staff kind of uh, you know take more time to make the case for a higher increase uh, was because I was hoping to maybe switch one or two onto the uh, the side of the four percent motion, but uh, that didn't happen. We had uh, seven people speak in favor of my motion. I was one of them. And uh, there was one who uh, didn't speak, but uh, indicated he was in support. So it would have been an 8-8 vote. So what do you do then? Because a a tie vote would defeat it. Do you think that in the time before it comes up at the next meeting, so again, just for backtrack for those who weren't watching or don't know, uh, there was lots of debate around this, but it eventually was referred to a future meeting. Do you think in that time there's a chance to convince more people to look at this? Well, yes, I think so. And I think uh, constituents, uh, uh, those that were privileged to represent, might want to take some time to uh, uh, have a discussion, send an email to their representative and uh, and urge um, 
that this, uh, I described it as uh, prudent, responsible, and achievable. Uh, obviously, with a combination of uh, uh, tools from the toolbox, uh, some uh, reserve fund, uh, you know, some uh, attrition, um, uh, perhaps a staff freeze uh, on hiring, except for those in, uh, you know, emergency uh, priority areas. Uh, so it is doable, uh, difficult, but doable. And, and I would argue absolutely essential. I mean, we, uh, you, you were there for the debate, so you know I outlined uh, the uh, approved um, uh, tax levy for the four years of the previous council. And over the four years, it averaged about 2.5%. So we can't do 6%, 10%, 12%. Um, given the fiscal uh, challenges that uh, that our people face, high mortgage rates, uh, food prices uh, going through the roof, um, um, uh, mortgages, uh, you know, you name it. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's really, really rough out there. And, uh, well, you and I, Scott, may be able to afford a 10%. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't uh, think so. I, I And I don't know who, I mean, I don't know who can. And, and one of the things you pointed out, and I think this is a really important thing for people to understand, because there's been a lot of numbers thrown around over the last little yeah. while. You you suggest that about ten and a half percent. So so fourteen point two percent was the number that two weeks ago we learned was the projected tax increase. Everybody completely lost their minds. People were having aneurysms all over the place when they heard fourteen point two percent. You suggested that about ten and a half percent of that is stuff that is being generated by the city of Hamilton. The rest would be downloads, but still ten and a half down to four would be a significant saving for people down the road if it was this year, if it was 6% less in tax increase. Yes, and one of my uh, key arguments is that if the Premier doesn't uh, of the province of Ontario doesn't make good on uh, his government's promise to make Hamilton whole financially, that would add another 3.69%, which would take the... Um, the total, even at four, to uh, you know seven point seven percent, which uh, would be very difficult to swallow. Uh, if if we couldn't get to four, say we got to six, six and a half, seven, we'd be over ten percent if the province didn't uh, keep their word. So, I'm I'm uh, hopeful that the uh, the province now that uh, you know the uh, greenbelt. Uh, uh, Cabazal has been hmm. sorted through. We'll uh, we'll look seriously at spending part of that $22 billion contingency that's in their accounts to uh, help not just Hamilton but other municipalities, uh, uh, you know, stabilize their their fiscal situation. And so, if they do, and we come in at four four uh, percent, um, uh, that would make a lot of people happy. I think. Sure, sure be a lot better than eight. It would be a lot better than eight. Okay, so just one more thing before we, we wrap it. And this is a this is where it gets really confusing because uh, many mayors in, this, in the province of Ontario now have strong mayor powers. And I think a lot of us are still not, it's a bit of a mystery still how these could be used or not used. We didn't get to hear a lot from Andrea Horvath today because she's n- under the weather and she was connected by online, but, you know, not talking very much because her voice isn't all that good. So I don't know exactly where she stands on this, but if, let's say for the sake of argument, you got enough votes to pass this so that you could have your 4% tax cap. If, and I don't know that this is the case, 
But could the mayor, if she was opposed to this, override that and go higher than that anyway? Is that what the strong mayor powers would allow? Yes, indeed, she could. The legislation provincially (coughs) for strong mayors requires that uh, a strong mayor do one of two things, either submit their own budget, um, and she decided not to do that. I don't blame her. I mean, she would then be the target for everybody, right? Yep. Um, or alternatively, to turn it back to council and uh, and staff. I've reminded uh, her worship on a couple of occasions that her promise during the election was to never use the strong mayor powers. Uh, that she pledged to be uh, to work with council and to be uh, entirely collaborative. There are several municipalities, Ottawa being one that immediately comes to mind, where the mayor simply said right away, um, I do not accept strong mayor powers and, uh, and, and will never use them. So, so the choice is up to the mayor. Uh, theoretically, if she were to go down that path, and I don't think she will because I think she's a, a woman of, uh, uh, who would, uh, would honor her commitment, but if she were to do that, she would only need six votes of council to do whatever she wanted on the budget front. Yeah, and and, and you know, you're, I think you're exactly right. Though I think that if if you had the votes for this and you got the number down to a number that people were okay with, I guess would be the best word for it. And somebody, whether her or some other situation came in and suddenly said, no, we're going to charge you way more. Boy, would that person ever be the target of everybody's ire when their tax bill came? I don't think anybody wants to do that. Well, if that were to happen, the council by two thirds vote uh, uh, can overturn a strong mayor's uh, six person uh, uh, vote to do something like that. And I, I think I know the council, uh, the horseshoe, uh, our council horseshoe, well enough to uh, to suspect that if that were to happen, there would probably be a censure motion put very, very quickly mm. um, with a two-thirds vote to uh, to uh, preclude uh, the, the mayor. Who, and let's remember, let's, let's honor, honor her commitment to not to use those powers, but if by chance that were to happen for some reason or other, um, the council could still override that, and I suspect they would. Yeah, and we and clearly we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's just the idea of what could happen. I don't expect it would. Uh, it, this is going to be just really interesting about where this vote finally ends up on this particular point. Uh, we got to run. Ted McBeacon, Ward 15 Councillor. Appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Uh, thanks for your interest, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is... Undoubtedly, uh, among all the things that we talk about or we hear governments talk about or we hear people talking to governments about now, poverty and issues around poverty and housing and food and expenses and all, all these things, it is, if it's not the number one thing that is in the discussion around governments these days, um, it's right up there. Uh, a new report is now out that is not really all that complimentary to how governments are doing dealing with this. Despite all the conversation, governments apparently are falling woefully, woefully short of this. Here to talk about this report, uh, Kirsten Beardsley is the CEO of Food Banks Canada, joins us now. Kirsten, thanks for this today. Thanks for having me. This is, um, well, let's get to that first part, because I I may be missing something else. I mean, I suppose that these days uh, governments are talking about Nazis a lot and other things, but generally, 
Um, these issues around trying to make life more affordable is one of the loudest, I would think, and most commonly held discussions. Surely no government is unaware of the challenges that are out there now. No, I mean, absolutely not. All governments are aware that uh, their citizens are struggling and they are aware that action needs to be taken. What we're not seeing necessarily across the board at the provincial or the federal level are those that legislative progress that we need to see. Um, it can't just be a talking point. It can't just be a way of criticizing our opponents. We need to see action um, to make the lives of real people across this country more affordable. And when, and when I say that governments are not doing particularly well, according to this report, the overall grade across Canada for or for the Canadian government is a D plus. Different provinces have different grades, but very few. I think only Quebec is doing reasonably well, according to this. The rest are way behind. Why? I mean, if, if again, if everybody knows about this, if we're all talking about it, if they're all aware of it, why are they doing so badly at it? Yeah, so what we did was we looked at different um, different. A different methodology to look at the issue. So we looked at publicly available data around things like poverty rates. We looked at quality of life, a standard of living for folks across the provinces. Um, we looked at, um, you know, measures of poverty, but we also looked at legislative progress. So it's the first of its kind report to consolidate all of this information in one place. And yeah, we were we were disappointed in the scores, but we think it re reflects the reality that folks are feeling across the country. Um, in Ontario, so it's a little bit, you know, the scores are bad, as you said, for most of the, most of us across the country. In Ontario, um, it's really the, the high cost of living, of housing. Um, we've got social assistance and disability rates that are just not keeping pace and keeping people in, in levels of deep poverty. We've also not seen a lot of legislative progress, a lot of piecemeal um, initiatives, but not a lot of legislative progress to address these issues. And so, you know, we're all doing poorly across the country, but in, in large part for different reasons. So that's that's what we're feeling in Ontario right now. Just as a bit of a, a background and a bit of a basis and context, um, I, I've traveled around the world that you may have as well. Many people listening have traveled to other parts of the world. When we hear the word poverty, it can mean different things. I mean, if you go to the developing world, poverty is something different mm -hmm. than what we see necessarily in Canada. What, when we talk about poverty, what are we talking about here? What, what does that mean in Canadian terms? Yeah, it means that you are living with an inadequate level of income for a quality of life that we would hope folks have in, in a country like Canada. So certainly we're looking at a, the Canadian context specifically. But I think what I always um, you know share around being from food banks shocks a lot of people in Canada. You know, we're dealing with over 1.5 million visits to food banks across the country every single month. And so those are people who don't have enough food to eat to get through the month. And I think that's shocking to a lot of people. Like why in Canada, a country this prosperous, um, do we have this level of need across the country? So poverty is a real issue right across Canada. We feel it here in Ontario as well. And so we want to be able to be proud of the country that we have. We want to be able to people to make sure people have access to prosperity and, and opportunities. And right now what we're seeing is pretty scary in terms of uh, the stagnation across the country. You just raised the question, why? Why do we have this poverty? I'll let you answer that question. Why do you believe we have this level of poverty in this country? 
Yeah, what we're seeing, as I said, is not a lot of legislative progress. So um, food banks, Canada, you know, the reason we did this report was because we advocate for policy that will help reduce food banks. We, you know, we want to put ourselves out of business as food bankers. We want fewer people to rely on our services. And we can only do so much. Food doesn't solve the underlying causes of food insecurity in Canada. You can give someone food and, and we need to do that work so that people have what they need today. But long term, it's government who need to step up to make sure people have um, an, an adequate source of income so that they can buy food. And, you know, what we saw was food banks came about in the 80s. We, we you know, the, the world was changing. Um, the, the, you know, the blue collar work was leaving the country. And so food banks really were meant to be a temporary solution. We'll fix the social safety net. Uh, food banks will close their doors and um, we'll have, we won't have this, this depth of need. Unfortunately, we've, we've not done that as a country. So our social safety net is in disrepair. And when you have a social safety net in disrepair, and then you have high, like rising costs, like we're seeing right now, on the other side, um, we're seeing crisis levels of, of poverty um, in Ontario and, and right across the country. You mentioned government, you mentioned legislation. Is this entirely a government responsibility? Is this entirely a government problem? The governments have have the biggest role to play absolutely in ensuring that the social safety net um, reduces uh, poverty or doesn't allow, allow people to fall through the cracks. I mean, certainly we all have a responsibility to play in building the Canada we want to see. And, you know, food bankers, I have to say, are doing our part. I, I work with people on the front lines of food banks who work flat out tirelessly to make sure there's food, make sure that food's healthy, make sure that it's getting to the right people at the right time. What we're not seeing is governments working as tirelessly on behalf of citizens. And we believe it's possible. And I want to point out with this report, we, we're not just coming with a problem. We're all feeling the pinch. We're talking about it a lot. As you said, this is government. Governments are all talking about the affordability crisis, but we're presenting a solution. We're presenting policy recommendations built for the governments that are currently elected at the provincial and federal level that we feel are not just um, you know, we feel are completely realistic and completely actionable. We're building, we're providing a path forward that we think will help us on our journey to see fewer people need food banks across the country. I do want to talk about some of the things that are in your report, but just one more thing on this before we go, because when we talk about the governments and, and like, I certainly understand for sure, um, the, the challenge, I guess, and I don't know how this gets resolved is, uh, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was reading the report that um, teachers unions say they need more and civil servants need more and health services, healthcare needs more and the arts need more and police and fire. I mean, you go down the list and every day there is somebody or some group telling the government, we demand more, we need more, we can't do without more. How do you squeeze into that and get your voice heard because it seems there is a point and I'm not suggesting poverty is that thing but there is a point when governments begin to say we don't have everything for everyone right and so what we're proposing again is really what I think is targeted and smart legislation um there is you know 
we have to decide what we want to be as a, as a country, as a society. There is no one who wants to see senior citizens going to a food bank. And unfortunately, that's the, that's the reality. We're seeing more seniors come through our doors. You know, a third of food bank users are children. Um, and, you know, that that has long-term impact on our society. We're costing ourselves prosperity. We're costing ourselves possibility when we don't, when we have kids who can't concentrate at school or can't, won't even go to school because they don't have food in their stomachs um, to be able to thrive. So I see these, you know, I think we need to see it less as a cost and more as an investment, as an investment in the future that we want. And I think there's a way to do it that's targeted and smart, you know, targeting um, things like the the lift, you know, targeting low-income uh, tax supports to low-income workers. So it's not a universal uh, benefit. It's targeted at those folks who might be on the edge, who might not be able to, to pay for their monthly expenses. Um, those are the folks we need to support. And I think it's through those investments that we'll see prosperity, we'll see the return on investment in the years to come. In this report, um, many, well, a number, many of the things, I guess, that uh, that are pointed to um, individually, I think a lot of people probably deal with. Uh, collectively, it becomes a real problem. But, you, you know, you're saying people, uh, you graded this, people feeling worse off compared to last year. That's not a very high grade. Uh, people paying more than 30% of income on housing. A lot of people in that group um people having trouble accessing healthcare i mean these are these are a lot of individual things that i guess when you find yourself checking off more than one or two of these boxes it it adds up into a real problem yeah i mean th these are it's what we call material deprivation or or standard of living that people should um should be able to have um in canada and we expect folks to have but they're there's they're leveling up as you said and creating huge problems and we're comparing provinces to each other so these are areas where ontarians are particularly struggling um in relation to their peers our peers across the country and so you know, we we can look to other provinces that are having a bit more success in addressing some of this stuff as a guidance to how we can address this from a legislative perspective. I know your study didn't look at this per se, but I'm sure you've looked at other places in the world. Are there places right now, because every place in the world seemingly is struggling to some degree or another, whether it's the war in Ukraine and the impact that's had on the global economy or food uh, availability or whether it's whatever. Are there places that have figured this out? There are some. I mean, I think what we want to see is a made in Canada solution and you can't translate. It's not like for like. OK, um, but we do look at other, you know, jurisdictions to see if there are promising or emerging practices. Um, right now, I would say what we've proposed is is the right kind of made in Canada solution that looks at, you know, targeted programs that help lift people out of poverty, that get governments working with community organizations and the private sector around things like housing. Um, and, and that's what we really need to focus on. Um, you know, we see low food bank use in, you know, in um, the Scandinavian countries with, with, you know, strong social safety nets and strong social supports. Um, but I do think that the solutions lie in Canada. Our country is, is vastly different. I was, you know, we were meeting with food bankers yesterday from across the country and, you know, commiserating about how big our country is and how that poses some unique challenges and how regional our country is in some ways. So I think we can look to 
our own country. We've got what it takes to address these issues. We've got some provinces that are pulling ahead. We've got some provinces that have different, you know, high scores in different areas. So let's let's look to each other first um, as we build these made in Canada solutions. Is there a, um, we only have a couple of minutes left here, but is there, is this something that can be done all at once or are you looking at a step-by-step process here? Let's do one thing and get things moving on one. Does this all have to be done simultaneously or can we take incremental steps to make this happen? Yeah, I think I think we need to see some progress, but it, you're right. It's not. It doesn't have to be all um, all at once. What we'd like to see um, in you know every province, in particular Ontario, is a strategy, a poverty strategy that can consolidate government action over a number of years and provides government with a target to introduce legislation and, and test it against a, a particular target mm-hmm. to see if it's having the the desired effect. So you know, and, and when we look at things like housing, we know that investments in how, you know, building new affordable housing now, we're not going to see those um, impact folks uh, for a number of years until that makes, you know, those units make it into the market. So we need to see some investments in people's incomes now, as well as those long-term investments. Um, But no, it doesn't have to be everything all at once. Um, What we want to see is some progress, some indication by governments that this is a priority and that they are going to take action to help folks uh, pull themselves up out of poverty. And part of the reason, as we go here, part of the reason I ask that question is, again, I, I'm pessimistic that any government is going to fix all of these at once. But is there one part? I mean, you work with food banks. I mean, so eating, clearly, I mean, we all know that's you're not going to achieve too much if you've got an empty tummy. But is there one area of this that would have the largest immediate impact to begin working on this? Is it housing? Is it healthcare? Is it food? Is there one that would be most impactful to get going on? Yeah, I mean, I have to say housing, given how many people are spending more than 30% of their income on housing, um, that's a crisis that we see. It is universal across the country and at the federal level that we haven't seen the level of action we need for a number of years which is why we find ourselves in this position. So, you know, uh, it's hard to pull out what's most um, important given the depth of need. But I think if governments want to have the impact, um, housing is a particular area of investment that they all need to focus on. It is uh, it is kind of a depressing study. I'm not I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but it's also uh, important to have been done. Uh, Food Banks Canada gives majority of governments a D plus in poverty reduction. Um not a great grade. Uh, Kirsten Beardsley, CEO of Food Banks Canada. Really appreciate you taking time today to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Bubba O'Neill of CHCH Sports fame, the most famous man at CHCH TV. How are you? Are you there? Do we have Bubba O'Neill? don't think we do well we'll try and we'll try and get Bubba again I think we've uh, we've got a bit of a Bubba issue but uh, yeah Carrie Underwood has been announced that she is coming to Hamilton she is going to be playing at not the Grey Cup halftime show usually the big announcement because you know that Hamilton is hosting the Grey Cup game this year usually the big announcement is who's going to be doing halftime well the Ticats and the Grey Cup organizers have thrown us an extra little bone this year good for them Good for them. This is not the halftime show. This is just a a concert at First Ontario Centre a couple days before the Grey Cup. 
So you're going to get Carrie and then something else for the halftime show. Which you would think, if Carrie Underwood is the opening act, what is the halftime show act? Well, let's try for Bubba O'Neill. Sir, how are you? Uh, there he I'm goes. Okay. All right, okay. we have liftoff. Way to go. Um, there you go. So, Carrie Underwood, not, I mean, she's the opening act. What does this mean for the halftime show? Who have we got coming for the halftime show? Well, I'm glad this is sort of, first of all, before we even go there, like, I'm glad it's, like, maybe the CFL and the Tiger Cats should have done a better job of, of trying to really announce to people that this, she is not the halftime show. I like, this is, people are losing their minds, and I think there's a, you know, that whole belief that the Grey Cup halftime show should be someone Canadian and an American is playing, and, like, there's just that belief that she's doing, it's like, no, she's doing the Friday night in this musical series, like, yep. it's just like, it's like, it's like people are losing their minds on that, and I don't know, I'm surprised that people are so stuck on that, but. Oh, I am, um, I am, I'm in that camp, I think that it, I think the halftime show has to be a Canadian. Now you can, I love that they're bringing Carrie Underwood. I love that she's doing a concert. I love that she's part of this whole thing, but I'm, I'm all on board with the, it has to be a Canadian. It's the biggest stage that we have in our country for musical acts. I think it should go to a Canadian. Should it? Like, why? It, shouldn't it just go to someone that's going to generate interest and, and, and people, it, it make people want to be there? Like, like the black eyed peas? Like, well, I mean, <laughs> hey, I, 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 well, I, it, Hey, look, come on. I mean, at one point, the Black Eyed Peas were one of the biggest acts in the world. Like, uh, you can't deny that. No, I, I, I just... Know you, mean, you personally don't like them, and that's fair. Mm. That's your opinion. I don't, have a, I don't have a beef with the Black Eyed Peas. I just well, didn't... Well, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that you, you may not like them, or that may not be your style of music, but the Black Eyed Peas at one time were one of the biggest bands in the world. And, and that was quite a get at the time, as was Lenny Kravitz at the time, as was Shania Twain, and I know she's Canadian, as was um, Keith Urban. Like, I don't know why it has, why does it have to be Canadian? Again, because I think this is the, this is the Canadian evening. This is the Canadian festival. This is yeah. the Canadian stage. I think it's supposed to be a celebration of Canadiana. And so. Oh, and, and I can, and I can deal with that, but let's, let's, Let's call a spade a spade, Scott. Like, this country has only produced so many people, right? Like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not down for the Guess Who again. I'm not down for Pagliaro again. I'm not down for, uh, you know... Um, What's Platinum know, Blonde up to these days? I don't know. Yeah, what are Platinum <laughs> Blonde up to? Like, you know, like, is, is, uh, is, is uh, the cool. guy that wear, wears uh, sunglasses? Corey Hart. I was yeah. just thinking Corey Hart. Yeah, he could do it too. They could do a combo platter. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Let's move on, right? That's what, that's like. Remember, this is what got the CFO in trouble, right? Is 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 kowtowing to people our age. At some point, you have to move on. You have to get, attract people. And I'm not saying you know you, you go to Finger Eleven and stuff like that too, you know that are local bands and stuff like that too. And I'm all for that. But we, we, we just can't keep going back to right. Loverboy. And, and, Let me and sit, I, okay, and I'm with you on that one. I don't, I don't think we need Mike Reno and Loverboy as much as I like their music. I'm, I'm with yeah. you, but let me throw another one at you. I mean, I, I may not be a fan, but I could certainly say, okay, let, let's, if you're bringing Carrie Underwood in as the opening act, essentially, let's mm-hmm. go all out here. What's Drake doing on the, the Grey Cup Day? There's a Canadian act you could bring in who would be as big as anybody on the planet. Well, Bieber already came. Bieber did it. Yep. No, Bieber did it for sure. 
Um, you know, there are like, I, I, I'm with you that I don't think it necessarily has to be someone who is now geriatric. I don't, I don't think we have to, you know, bring Anne Murray back for another go around. But I think there are a lot of Canadian acts that fall into the young person's category that would, would satisfy both things, Canadian and drawing interest from younger fans or younger well, people who two, could there's be there's fans. There's only two people that, that category, in that category, if you're, if you're talking someone that's going to, to, to move the needle, and that's The weekend and Drake. Right, that that that's as far as you go. But then you're going to get the people that are, you know, that love rock and roll that say, ah, oh, hip hop guys. No, uh, and, and look, it's not my. It's like I don't particularly like Drake. In fact, I don't like him at all. But that doesn't matter. I recognize that there is a huge audience for that. And, and I'm also recognizing, you know what, it can be country one year, it can be rock one year, it can be hip hop one year. Why not? It doesn't always have to be the same thing. Well, I agree. I agree. But it, it, like I said, I just I I'm I'm all for, you know, we're making we're talking about this right because the Tiger Cats or the CFL or whoever pulled this off got the likes of a Carrie Underwood. Yep. Like like when that got you know that when I came into work yesterday and that was you know being discussed amongst amongst many of my colleagues. Like I think we could all in unison and we're you know we're talking about a a wide age group here. We're all like pretty impressed. In, impressed for the oh, sure. you know, impress, impressed for the city, impressed for hey, the Tiger Cats and the CFL that they were able to attract someone that big, and but yeah, I mean to, to your original question, if she's doing Friday night, who's doing Saturday night, and who's doing uh, Sunday? Well, uh, I don't know. I, you know, it's like, I hope um, it's not a drop off from there. <laughs> well. Um, We'll see. We'll see. They have set the bar high, and good for them. I mean, it's a it was a, it's a name that has certainly grabbed attention. And as we were joking with Ben um, just before you were coming in here, uh, you know, all she's got to do is start with, "Are you ready for some football?" And boy, talk about the crossover perfect mix here. I mean, just uh, they they nailed she it. On that that, one, that's so. that's not her song, or she she does the, she does the NBC one. Remember? Oh yeah, football. Yeah, you're right. It's the uh, Sunday night football. She, she does a Sunday night. Yeah, football yeah, you're right. One. Yep. Okay, um, well, that one. Do that the one. The only, I mean, and, and you tell me about this, and I kind of suggested this in the newsroom the other day. Arkell's just released a, a, a new, a new. I don't know. Do we call? Do we call it albums nowadays? I know I'm old. I call it an album. They released new music. Like, you know. <laughs> now I know they were recently here. Um, I I would love to see them again. Um, but you know, it's twice in three years. Is that is that breaking rules? Um, you know, I mean, when the when the hundredth Grey Cup was in Toronto, you referenced Bieber, and it was Bieber, and it was um, was it Gordon? Was it Gordon Lightfoot? They had also You're right, then? yeah, Gordon and Lightfoot was and and Burton Cummings, and, and they also three, had the three. um uh. uh Call me maybe whoever sings that one. I can't remember now who did, who was also there. Anyway, call me maybe. Um, call me maybe. But Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae Jepsen. Yep. But when they did that one, so you've got this mix of people. So maybe you know, yeah, you bring the Arkells who do a song combined with, I don't know, whoever else is your your you know you do something like that. It could be it could be splashy. All right, let's leave the music thing alone for a second because the other big question about the Grey Cup is, in my mind. Is there any plausible way at this point that the Hamilton Ticats can find a way to beat the Toronto Argonauts and get to the Grey Cup game? Because so far there's been no evidence of it unless Toronto's bus takes a wrong turn and they end up in Sault Ste. Marie and forfeit the game. Can, can the Ticats figure out how to beat this team? Because they're going to have to. 
Well, Chad Kelly has to be injured. <laughs> yeah, well, and I say, and I say that I say that I was a tug in cheek, obviously. Of course, but, but you know, but hey, beating someone five times in a year can that be done? I don't know if that's ever been done in in professional football, and you would have it would have to be. I mean, obviously, it can't happen in the NFL because you play someone a maximum. It could be a maximum of, of of twice, maybe even three times, going a little further back in the day. But in the C, it would have to be in the CFL. You would have to beat someone four times and then make it a fifth. So, yeah, the odds are in the Ticats' favor that if they have to travel down the road to the QEW for the East Final, that maybe there's a glimmer of hope. Uh, the Tiger Cats kind of loaded up today, added a real good defensive lineman, Daryl Walker, who's a, an experienced wide receiver. Um, you know, they got this four-game march. But, you know, the crazy thing about the CFL is there's Scott. All you got to do is win one game. And, yeah. you know, for the Argos, win one game and you're in the big dance. And in the Tiger Cats' case, it will have to be two. Um, remember what happened the year, was it 2020, I guess, or 2021, when the Ticats went into Toronto? And, uh, and and by far, I thought, in the regular season, Toronto were a better team. And then, I guess, Masoli got hurt, and Dane Evans came in there and, and, and put on a, a perfect performance, right? Like, that was totally unexpected. So, I, I'm not... You know that you know the CFL. It's how you're playing at that time of the year. And crazy things can happen. Yeah, one of the other questions that they're going to have to answer, and we talked on this uh, s- uh, several weeks ago, is what do you do if you're the Ticats and Bo Levi Mitchell is suddenly healthy? Now, that's looking less and less likely, but he really has not played this year, but he's your guy. And I just wonder what your decision is if all of a sudden the last week of the year he says, I need this week's game to get ready and I'm ready to go. Uh, this is going to be very unpopular, what I'm about to say. Um, it, I, and I say that because I think I've been kind of testing the, 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 the t- testing of people's opinions by kind of flirting with this over about the last month. I don't think the – this is just a personal opinion. Right? This is not yeah, the Ticats, the Ticats Audio Network. This is, not, this is just me. If the Tiger Cats are going to win the Grey Cup, Bo Levi Mitchell has to be under center. You think so? I just, that's my opinion. Yeah, no, and no, and, my, and and it makes and I, sense. And, and, you know, he's working out, and he's you know throwing alone, and it makes sense. Video of it. It makes sense based on his history, based on his experience. That just the question is, can you come in at this time of year when everyone else is operating at full speed, just humming along, and you have to knock the rust off in the span of one game? Can you do that? And can you be really? Ready to go. That 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 it's going to be such a tough question though, because if you're the head coach, uh, you are living and dying with this decision. Because if it doesn't work, you're going to get a million questions about why in the world did you bring in a guy who hasn't played all year? If it and if you leave your other guy in and it doesn't work, the questions are going to be why in the world did you not bring in your all-star, all-world, big-money quarterback that was supposed to take you to the Grey Cup? You can't win really unless you win uh-huh. the game. Here's my, my, again, I can only say, and again, you guys know I'm on the Tiger Cats Audio Network, but again, I will preface this by saying this is my opinion only. I would believe that if Bo Levi Mitchell comes in at any time late in the season to, to be the num, you know, QB number one, that that will not be just a decision made by Orlando Steinauer, the head coach and president of football operations. And that's not to disrespect him or in any way. I believe this will be an organizational decision. I would agree. And if I was, and if I, and if I was, or, and if I was Orlando as well, too, I would probably seek counsel on this as well, too, from, from well. you, know, you know, my general managers and, of course, maybe even the president, uh, Scott Mitchell. I, 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 would, I would seek 
I would see because you're right. This is a that's a very tough decision. It's really hard now. Because you're right, because we did see some regression, in my opinion, on Taylor Powell and the way he played last week against the Argonauts. But he has been on a slow, steady, up, you know, uptick for this team, and has you know gotten himself into the conversation of the good young quarterbacks in the CFL. But I think this will be an organizational decision. Very, very kind difficult. Of, kind of collective. that You see this from the Blue Jays. Everything they do is collective. General yeah. manager mm. to, to, to the president to, to the manager. It would have to be. All right, very quickly, we've got two minutes here. So uh, I saw a tw- uh, thing on Twitter yesterday, I guess it was, of Joey Votto, great Canadian baseball player, taking a, doffing his cap in Cincinnati. It might be his last homestand right now. He doesn't, it's not sure if he's going to be playing after this, if he's going to retire or whatever. So I'm giving you five of the greatest Canadian ball players ever. Rank them from five to one. All right, all of these are greats. Russell Martin, Eric Gagne, Larry Walker, Ferguson Jenkins, Joey Votto. Ferguson Jenkins, number one. Okay. Look at his numbers. They're sick. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yep. Uh, Larry Walker. Okay. Uh, Joey Votto. Uh... Then I would start getting into the. And you start who were the other two? Russell Martin, Eric Gagne. Eric, I would. Uh, I would have to go with Gagne because he said such crazy. Would he go two years without giving, joking up the save? I think so. Yeah, and something then, like and that. Then, and then, and then Russell Martin. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's funny because that was exactly. I didn't expect we'd be. You know, we rarely have exactly the same list. That's exactly the order I would put in. And I don't think at this point, as much as Votto is outstanding and a sure Hall of Famer, and as much as Larry Walker was outstanding and should have been a sure Hall of Famer, he finally got in, but it dragged it out way more than it should have. Ten years, eleven years. I don't know how anyone can look at Fergie Jenkins and not say greatest Canadian baseball player of all time. Yeah, I mean, I and not even the wins. We, we now sort of throw wins out and we go, wins don't matter. He had over 300 wins, but I don't think, did he ever have an injury? Did he ever miss games? I mean, the guy just threw and threw and threw and it, is. it was amazing. Go, go, look, you know, we, we get all nervous. Everyone gets all nervous nowadays when someone gets close to 100 pitches. Managers get all <laughs> yeah, freaked right. out when freaked out when you got to see someone a third time. Folks, do yourself a favor if you're a baseball fan. You know this to be true. Go look at BaseballReference.com. 295 innings. Uh, 300 innings. You know, one year I believe he won like 26 games, you know, on like, what, 33, 34 starts. Like, and remember, a lot of times, too, those teams had four-man rotation, Scott, not five. I was wrong, by the way. He has 284 victories. I thought he had 300, but he had 284 and uh, 267 complete games. What? Um, yep. And uh, it, where, where is Sorry, this? Sorry, can, can you say that again? I didn't even know that. Yep. So he, um, let's see here. I just got to pull this thing up. So um, where are the numbers here? He had... Um, in what year was this? One of his years, he pitched 325 innings. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, it's like, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Sorry, how many complete games? Uh, I think it was 267 complete games. 
I think as a team, the Toronto Blue Jays have had two complete games this year. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a different world, I understand, but it's just amazing that he could, that it's amazing, I mean, I've met him a few times, he's been around at various events, and mm-hmm. I shook his hand, which I find shocking, not that I shook his hand, but that his arm had not fallen off, and I wasn't <laughs> shaking a stump, because when yep. you throw that much, like it should have, one day it should have gone bump, and fallen onto the mound, and said, yeah, I'm sorry, my arm has given up on me. Never did. You know what, and if you see the guy today, I swear to you, and you know that I know you're a baseball purist. He could go out in the mountain and throw and throw a couple of pitches too to you. Yeah, I, we got to run, but you know, I, I always think back to the oh, it's probably um, 15 years ago now. Nolan Ryan was either because he played for Texas and he played for Houston. I can't remember which team. I think it was Texas was in the playoffs, and Nolan Ryan, who was now. 66, 67, 68, went out to throw the ceremonial first pitch and hummed an 85-mile-an-hour fastball oh, in. I first, remember that. First. And I'm thinking, you know what? That was hilarious. Fergie Jenkins probably could do the same thing, and he's older than Nolan Ryan. No doubt, no doubt. Anyway. We Great Canadian. Great, Great Canadian. Canadian. Yeah, there you go. I, I agree with you. All right, Bubs, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. Always a pleasure, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.